Hello SFIA audio listeners, in this month's Nebula exclusive, Giant Space Monsters, we'll take a look at what sorts of alien behemoths might be possible under known science. To hear it and every episode early and ad-free, plus hours of bonus content, check out go.nebula.tv slash IsaacArthur and use my code, IsaacArthur. This episode is sponsored by Audible. We often wonder where all the ancient alien civilizations are, and if they might not exist, but could the reason be something as simple as a vital element being scarce? So we had a big new discovery recently that we found phosphine gas on Venus, a possible biosignature for life, and while this episode was written before that and is focused principally on what the scarcity of phosphorus might mean for looking for alien life, it's a bit too important and relevant of a discovery not to address, and so we'll begin to it at the end of the episode as an addition. Our regular viewers know that one of our favorite topics, and indeed the topic that inspired me to start the channel in the first place, is the Fermi Paradox. This is the great looming question in our so far fruitless search for other life forms in the galaxy. Why, when the Universe is so vast and old, and life can form spontaneously from base molecules and evolve into sentient beings like we did, have we not detected any clear signs of life anywhere, let alone galactic civilizations? The answer is that so far we don't know why, but we have come up with a number of theories as to what might make it more rare and difficult than we thought for life to form or for intelligence to arise, what forces might just occasionally kill all life off and start the process over, and what errors in judgment might lead civilizations to destroy themselves not very long after they start producing signals we could even detect. And to be honest, I kind of hope that if life really is as rare in the Universe as we think it might be, the reason is something amazing and dramatic, like supernova storms or cognitive contagions, because then at least we are alone out here because of something interesting. It is frustrating to think that the vast resource-rich Universe out there might be mostly empty and wasted and that we're in it alone because of some mundane quirk of chemistry. That is the troubling topic we'll be discussing today. The element phosphorus is essential to life as we know it, but phosphorus appears to be rare in our solar system and more rare in the Universe. There are good reasons to suspect that many stellar systems, large swaths of our galaxy and others, will maybe very scarce or at least lack enough of it for life to start. If this is true, the rarity of essential phosphorus might not be the only reason for the rarity of life. It might also put a hard limit on how much life there can ever be, which would really put a crimp in our plans to populate the galaxy with quadrillions of humans. Even if life finds a way to arise and evolve in stellar systems that lack phosphorus, that doesn't change the fact that we, in our current physical form, absolutely need it. And as we saw in our episode Non-Carbon-Based Life, the prospects for life not sharing our basic chemistry are not very good. So let's take a moment to understand why phosphorus is essential to life as we know it. We describe the life forms of Earth as carbon-based because so many molecules essential to organic metabolic processes are built around branching chains or loops of carbon atoms, but phosphorus is ubiquitous in essential organic compounds, it would not be unreasonable to refer to Earth-like life forms as carbon-phosphorus-based life. If you ask most science writers why phosphorus is essential, they'll tell you immediately about adenosine triphosphate, ATP, the chemical that all known life forms on Earth use to transfer energy. When plants absorb sunlight and produce oxygen photosynthesis, that oxygen is actually just a byproduct of the first steps of photosynthesis. The end result of the last step of photosynthesis is converting ADP, adenosine diphosphate, into higher energy ATP. 
Pushing the thawed phosphate group onto the adenosine is somewhat like compressing a spring, storing energy that can be released later when it's needed. When enzymes within the cells convert the ATP back into ADP, that huge energy release is what powers the enzyme and the basic functions of the cell. Multicellular life forms, ourselves included, who don't do photosynthesis but instead just breathe oxygen to burn sugars to power a different process that also converts ADP into ATP and then use the ATP to power enzymatic cellular processes in pretty much the same way plants do. So every known life form on Earth, except a few that are just big molecules that strain our definition of the term life form, are powered by a cycle of pushing phosphate groups like springs down at ADP and using that stored energy that's released when they pop back off. But an even better illustration of why phosphorus is essential to Earth-based life is right there in the structure of DNA and its simpler ancestor RNA. Every other link in that vastly long molecular chain is a phosphate group with a phosphorus at the center. So without phosphorus, we lose the very means by which our known life encodes the instructions for becoming alive, remaining alive, and making more stuff that's alive. Of course you could point to any atom in RNA or DNA, the carbon, nitrogen, oxygen, or hydrogen, and declare that without it life as we know it couldn't exist. And you would be correct, but all of those elements are quite abundant throughout the Universe. We are a little over 1% phosphorus by mass, but it's even rarer on Earth making up about 0.1% of the crust and not even in the top 10 most common elements here. It's even rarer than that in the solar system, coming in at 17th place for abundance, making up a paltry 0.0007% of the mass of the solar system. We aren't sure how common it is universe-wide and there's some debate if it's more abundant in our solar system or not, but planets and stars older than Earth would tend to have lower concentrations, as fewer supernovae would have occurred in the distant past to add heavy elements to the galaxy at large. And for the Fermi Paradox, a critical concept is why we don't see older civilizations around, and perhaps it is from phosphorus scarcity preventing life from emerging in the first place. Earth's amount and the general reactivity issues of phosphorus already are low enough that for decades the phosphate problem has stumped scientists trying to figure out the origin of life on Earth, and we'll discuss that in a bit, but if you go to some planet with an even lower concentration of phosphorus, that problem would only be worse. The ten most common elements in the Universe, in descending order, are hydrogen, helium, oxygen, carbon, neon, iron, nitrogen, silicon, magnesium, and sulfur. Only one in 2,000 atoms are not one of those ten, and phosphorus only makes up three out of every ten million atoms, silicon atoms are 100 times more common. So why is phosphorus so much less abundant than the other elements essential to life? To answer, it helps to look at how and where the various elements are produced. It's a common misconception that most heavier elements are produced in supernovae, but this is not correct. Almost all elements with more than 40 protons in them, like gold, platinum, or uranium, come from the collision of neutron stars. In contrast, the lighter elements mostly come from the death pangs of smaller stars, the final stages of fusion. For example, silicon is the last element for fusion fuel, and one that only the most massive stars only burn for about a day before they explode. Big stars are very inefficient users of fusion fuel and burn in layers so when they detonate, plenty of unused fuel of various types gets scattered. Many of the elements said to come from supernovae are actually produced in this way, as fusion products in the star's old age and just get scattered when it explodes. And not all supernovae are Type 2, giant exploding stars. The other common variety, Type 1a, are white dwarf stellar remnants that explode after pulling mass off some close binary partner, 
but phosphorus seems to mostly be produced in Type 2 supernovae and only during the supernova event itself. The most likely mechanism is when the silicon-30 isotope captures a neutron during the explosion, briefly becoming unstable silicon-31, then quickly emits an electron and decays into phosphorus-31. But silicon-30 is not the most common silicon isotope, and its capture cross-section for neutrons is very small, meaning the neutron has to hit just right to get absorbed, so it doesn't happen very often. We also know that Type II supernovae are not distributed evenly in the galaxy, and the supernova remnants appear to have significantly varying concentrations of phosphorus. Shockwaves from supernovae carry matter into space and are thought to be what compresses the interstellar medium and triggers it to begin coalescing into protostellar systems. If phosphorus were lower in concentration in those shockwaves, then those new star systems and their planets also will have less phosphorus than other systems like our own. So the problem isn't just that phosphorus is rare, it might also be unevenly distributed, with huge swaths of our galaxy almost lacking it. And the mere existence of phosphorus in a stellar system doesn't necessarily mean it's available to facilitate the formation of life. The abundance of elements in the crust of our planet doesn't match up too well with the solar system at large, even ignoring the hydrogen and helium differences as they are super abundant but only in places like the Sun and gas giants that can hold on to the ultralight particles. Our crust is not all planets and some materials sank in toward the core when the place was molten, especially those prone to forming up big dense molecules, while silicon for instance tends to float on the magma well and stay near the surface and thus is right behind oxygen in its crustal abundance, even though carbon, nitrogen, and neon are more common in the solar system. Earth has a lot of phosphide, relatively speaking, but most of it is down in the planetary core. What's more, phosphide isn't very useful for life, unlike phosphate, which is phosphorus linked up to oxygen atoms, which might be a bit problematic on Earth for the purpose of life forming since there was not an oxygen atmosphere on this planet until long after life had formed. But phosphorus also tends to bind into molecules that are insoluble in water, which is very problematic for life, since it is pretty much predicated on water solubility. Indeed of all the biogeochemical cycles for life, many of which are quite quick and often involve the atmosphere, the phosphorus cycle does not involve the atmosphere and has one of the slowest cycles. It slowly grows rare on land as it washes out to sea and sinks, and only gets refreshed by tectonic activity. If you have some hypothetical chemical solution, from which the first building blocks of life needed to arise, then we have an issue with there being virtually no phosphorus around in that solution. If the stuff is rare, in forms that aren't water-soluble and prone to sinking, then you've got a bit of a problem. Just to take a simplified example, we said there were six key elements for life, oxygen, carbon, hydrogen, nitrogen, calcium, and phosphorus in that order, and that is the same number as there are sides on a dice. Let's say we were rolling a bunch of dice, ten of them. The odds of any specific combination getting rolled is 1 in 6 to the 10th power, about 1 in 60 million, on fair dice anyway, so our odds of rolling 10 sixes are pretty low. Now if our dice are badly balanced so that instead of a 6 coming up 1 in 6 times, 17% of the time, it only came up 1% of the time or 1 in 100, then the odds of rolling 10 sixes isn't 1 in 6 to the 10th power, but rather 1 in 100 to the 10th power. Not 1 in 60 million, but rather 1 in 100 billion billion. For perspective, if we had some solution that was forming molecules once a second on that 1 in 60 million odds and dropped the concentration so it was now 1 in 100 billion billion, that formation reaction goes from once a second to once every 50,000 years. 
and if we drop yachts from 1% even more, down to 0.1%, that would now happen on average once every 500 trillion years, 40,000 times longer than the age of the Universe. That gives you an idea how important having the right concentration of phosphorus in the primordial soup of life is, even just halving the chance of rolling a 6 in our previous example would have lowered the odds a thousandfold, requiring either a thousand times as much of the solution or a thousand times as long. So even a relatively minor variation in the abundance of phosphorus in a planet's crust is a big deal. Using our 10 dice example, a thousand planets with half the concentration would have the same odds of generating life on just one of them as one planet with double the concentration has, and for the ones with a tenth the concentration you would need 10 billion of those planets to equal the odds that one lone planet had. As you can see, even an entire galaxy of planets doesn't need much of a drop in the availability of phosphorus to be very unlikely to have a single planet have life form on it. And as I mentioned earlier, Earth has unusually high concentrations of phosphorus in the crust, but they are still troublingly low for models of life forming here. So how did we get a high enough phosphorus concentration here on Earth? Well, we generally assume life formed in one of three ways, in tidal pools, or around deep sea thermal vents, or with it originating in space and coming in on a comet or meteorite, a concept called panspermia, see that episode for details. And indeed we suspect that a lot of the phosphorus available to early life came in by meteorites after the planet formed. For life to originate near geothermal vents or tidal pools, the problem is the phosphorus concentration. Phosphorus in seawater nowadays is 0.1 parts per million, quite low and not really very conducive to life, but we see it higher near thermal vents if not really high enough. And tidal pools accumulate runoff, get stored up and muddy, and evaporate to higher concentrations, so either is an okayish candidate in the absence of something better, but still don't exhibit anything like the concentration of phosphates that would make the odds good, and we always assume life started in or near an ocean given that life was around for billions of years in the ocean before land life emerged. And this is the phosphate problem I mentioned near the beginning. There just doesn't seem to be any good options for anything in the sea to have had a decent concentration of phosphates to make a primordial soup which life could emerge in. Recently it's been suggested that carbonate-rich lakes, those in dry environments where runoff water flows in but evaporation keeps them salty and alkaline, might be a better candidate. While they vary in concentration a lot, we have found some of these carbonate-rich soda lakes, with 50,000 times the phosphorus levels of seawater. Such lakes might have been a good deal more common in the past too, given that a primordial earth with no plants and roots holding the soil in place would have a lot of runoff and erosion. Those lakes being carbonate-rich helps too. Normally if you have a lot of calcium present, and there's more of it than phosphorus, it will bind with phosphorus into calcium phosphate, which life can't access. But carbonate can bond to the calcium as calcium carbonate and leave some phosphorus free. Primordial Earth is thought to have had an atmosphere principally of nitrogen and carbon dioxide, and also far more volcanic activity, which might have allowed even higher concentrations of phosphorus than these modern lakes we've investigated. Phosphate levels might have been able to climb in some cases to a million times the concentration in seawater, potentially 1 in 10 atoms rather than 1 in 10 million, vastly higher than any suggested in normal tidal pools or deep sea thermal vents. So okay, maybe phosphorus is rare and biologically accessible phosphorus even rarer, and key biological processes require phosphorus, but didn't Ian Malcolm from Jurassic Park teach us that life finds a way? 
Surely, life and evolution being as inventive as they are, could concoct some alternative molecular mechanism for energy transfer that doesn't involve phosphorus, right? Well, that's why I keep using the phrase, life as we know it. Of course we can't know for sure if life needs to run on water and carbon and phosphorus like it does here, and in the same way it does here. We took an in-depth look at that in our episode, Non-Carbon-Based Life, and covered a ton of options from alternative chemistries to crystal or metal deposits forming into big natural computers. In our episode, Void Ecology, we contemplated how complex life might arise in space rather than planets with atmospheres and oceans, and we even contemplated wilder scenarios like life emerging inside stars in our episode Conscious Stellar Objects. However, the very fact that life on Earth evolved to make such ubiquitous use of phosphorus when phosphorus is not all that common tells us one of two things, possibly both. Life based on phosphorus was easier to form than a non-phosphorus mechanism, and or life based on phosphorus was far more successful once it did form. And that strongly implies that whatever life could form in the primordial ooze, lacking phosphorus, won't form easily and or might not be nearly as adaptable or successful. If you've got a creature on an alien planet that can eat iron ore, and another that can only eat gold nuggets, all things being equal, that iron eater is going to be wildly more successful. So if you find a world dominated by gold eaters but plentiful in iron ore, it tells you iron eating life is either wildly improbable to develop, or that gold eating life is way more likely to prosper. Same concept for phosphorus. If life had been able to develop using something less scarce, Occam's Razor says it would have. So this is a very plausible solution to the Fermi Paradox. We might very well be alone because we are on a very rare planet that has enough of a rare element that life doesn't form easily or work well without, and the rest of the Universe is just out of luck. Or alternatively, such planets are pretty rare and were even rarer in the earlier periods of the Universe, which is almost as good for the Fermi Paradox, because as we saw in the Great Filter series, there's plenty of other things that can lower the odds of life forming too and lower the odds further of it getting intelligent and building spaceships. Remember, the Fermi Paradox isn't about if other civilizations exist equal to modern day humanity, but rather if older ones exist who could have gone out and colonized the galaxy and be noticeable to us with our current technology. So if worlds older than Earth tended to be scarcer in phosphorus, you might have more worlds with life but just not that developed yet. We might just be the first to be building spaceships, as we looked at recently in our episode Fermi Paradox, Firstborn. Time is a factor too. Keep in mind I gave concentrations of phosphorus in the modern Universe, not what it was 4 or 5 billion years ago when our young planet got its allotment. The Universal Average would have been much lower at that time than now, because there hadn't been as many stars that became Type 2 supernovae. The younger a planet or solar system is, the older the Universe was when it formed, and the better its odds of having higher concentrations of phosphorus. So there's an optimistic angle on this story, as the Universe gets older it might become more fertile for life to form. But the most annoying part of the phosphorus problem for futurists is that, since we humans require phosphorus, we might not be able to just rush out and populate the vast Universe full of resources awaiting us, because how much phosphorus we find, or make, sets a hard limit on how many of us there can ever be. Humans and our food are mostly made of water, which by mass is mostly made of oxygen, but we're also about 1% phosphorus. Let's say we send a colony ship to a stellar system abundant in every imaginable resource except that it's sorely lacking in phosphorus that's reasonably easy to get to. But say we send those colonists off with a generous stock of a million metric tons of phosphorus from Earth, a billion kilograms, and let us say they don't waste any precious phosphorus on pleasant grasslands or forests or pets, 
they strictly recycle every precious atom of it. And let's further assume that every human has a mass of about 70 kilograms, and at any given moment there's another 30 kilograms of feedstock on hand, which makes a nice round number of 100 kilograms of biomass, and hence 1 kilogram of phosphorus required per human. That means that billion kilograms of phosphorus they brought will build 1 billion humans in their food and that's it. Perhaps you could double that by making people smaller and keeping less food in reserve, but clearly there's a hard limit where they can't make any more food or babies until they find some more phosphorus, and that's assuming they are nothing but humans, when in practice our planet has about 3 trillion tons of life on it, 18% of that is carbon and we often give biomass in tons of carbon, and 1% is phosphorus, or 3 billion tons. That means for terraforming and colonizing a world to our current population ecology, you'd have about 400 kilograms of phosphorus per person, not 1 kilogram, only including the phosphorus tied up in any given moment in something alive. And if you're terraforming planets or building big space habitats, you are going to need values like that. Again, you might lower that by having a higher percentage of biomass be people, or it might be lower if you like garden parks and rural space habitats and planets. And of course you need a lot sitting in the soil not just life forms. Let us ballpark it at one ton per person for simplicity's sake. Earth is the most massive rocky planet in the solar system, and indeed mass around as much as all the other rocky planets, moons, and asteroids combined do. However, only about 1% of its mass is in the crust, and only about 0.1% of that is phosphorus. So if we extracted every last bit of it from our crust, we would have about 10 million billion tons, enough for 10 million billion people, a million times our current population. And that is only Earth and only Earth's crust, it might have a high abundance but there is more phosphorus in the solar system. Now we often talk about how a Dyson Swarm is the likely fate of solar systems where technological life develops or visits, a Dyson Swarm or Dyson Sphere being a collection of objects around a star using up all its available energy. Since the Sun gives off 2 billion times more light than reaches Earth, we generally just multiply our population by 2 billion to guess as Dyson Swarm populations and that would be 16 billion billion people, 1600 times the 10 million billion figure for a ton of phosphorus per person, and still a bit larger than the 1 kilogram of phosphorus per person we could have if humans were the only life period. For Dyson Swarms, we don't assume that collection of objects orbiting the Sun and using all its light would all be space habitats, but we're often worried about finding enough mass for all of those, and one solution to come up with the raw material is to engage in star lifting, as stars form from the same stuff as the planets around them, so are heavy in metals, just way heavier in hydrogen and helium. And indeed most of the phosphorus in our solar system is in our Sun. It doesn't make phosphorus, mind you, and never will, but again it formed from the same nebula Earth did. If you sucked all the phosphorus out of our Sun, which is presumably where 99.8% of our solar system's stockpile is, since it is 99.8% of the solar system's mass, then you would have a lot more. Our solar system masses 2 billion 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 tons. Again though, phosphorus is less common off Earth, making up only 7 parts per million of the mass, or 14 billion trillion tons. So that's your hard limit if you suck every drop from the Sun. Excluding the Sun it drops a lot, and leaving in the gas giants, which have most of the remainder, leaves you 28 billion billion tons. So there's enough for space habitats, barely, but it turns out to be a major control factor on building them if you want life on them. And this is only if you're dismantling solar systems, not if you're just mining asteroids, and we can't assume at the moment that phosphorus will be decently abundant in other solar systems, especially on the crusts of big planets. 
so folks going out and colonizing distant planets around other stars are going to need to find some phosphorus, or make some. We never want to limit ourselves to assuming natural sources when dealing with advanced civilizations, after all we've barely reached our moon, but we already make elements that don't occur naturally in the Universe. So a civilization might avoid a phosphorus bottleneck by just getting it out of the stars, not simply by star lifting, but by using the star's power supply to run a ton of supercolliders or atom smashers to make some. Silicon-30 is fairly common, the heaviest of the three staple silicon isotopes, and about 3.1% of natural silicon. You whack that with a neutron at a speed that captures it, and you've got silicon-31, with a half-life of a couple of hours before it decays into regular ore stable phosphorus. As we mentioned last week in the future of fission, we do this type of transmutation in labs all the time via breeder reactors, it's how we make plutonium. Transmutation is rather expensive, but if phosphorus turns out to be a bottleneck for the growth of our civilization, I'm sure we'll develop the means to get a lot better at it. But even if we do develop such industrial processes for mass synthesizing phosphorus, synthesizing just about anything is a lot more expensive than simply finding it. Any native deposits of phosphorus will be prized, mined quickly and maybe even become a critical commodity folks have wars over, perhaps even more prized than the precious metals in the asteroids, since literally we can live without precious metals. There might be life out there somewhere that eats gold, but we do not, we need phosphorus, and the odds are high that life out there does too. So as I mentioned at the beginning, we had a big piece of news come in while we were working on this episode the discovery of clouds of phosphine gas on Venus, and I don't think we could run this episode without giving that a mention. The phosphine molecule consists of one phosphorus atom bonded to three hydrogen atoms, forming a triangular pyramid. It's highly flammable in oxygen and highly toxic to life on Earth. In fact, it's a substance we normally only encounter on Earth in life that's falling over dead. It's literally rat poison. So phosphine gas actually kills things, at least things that breathe oxygen. Importantly though, it's only poisonous to aerobic oxygen-breathing organisms, anaerobic life is a completely different consideration. On Earth it's produced by some anaerobic microbes in water low in oxygen as anaerobic life depends on low oxygen levels. Venus has very little molecular oxygen in its atmosphere, so any airborne organisms there would be anaerobic and might emit phosphine like their earthly cousins. To understand the excitement around discovering phosphine in Venus's atmosphere, we need to talk about atmospheric biosignatures. We usually mean by this that a given molecule either shouldn't exist in the atmosphere or should be far low in concentration, with some biological process in place to replenish it. High concentration of molecular oxygen is the big one, because we know of photosynthesis and not many other processes that produce it, and because it's so reactive that plenty of processes would consume it all if it weren't being replenished by life. Something similar might apply to phosphine gas. As I said, some anaerobic Earth microbes do produce stuff, and it breaks down very quickly in our oxygen-rich atmosphere. Earth microbes produce it from environmental phosphorus or indirectly by fermentation of organic matter to get energy. It also acts as a defense mechanism for them, both to poisonous oxygen-breathing competitor microbes and to remove deadly oxygen from the water around them. So if you find any concentration of it on a planet with an oxygen atmosphere, it would be a strong biosignature. But it is not such a definite life sign in Venus's atmosphere, which has abundant clouds of acid to react with any metal phosphides present to release phosphine, and where the phosphine would be broken down, reacting with other gases that break it down more slowly than oxygen does. So the phosphine could be being created and replenished by life on Venus, but the evidence is not strong, it's really just a could be. 
We also shouldn't discount the differences in chemistry between Earth and Venus. Venus has some truly hellish environments, both on the planet's surface and in its thick atmosphere, and I'm not only talking about the high temperatures and pressures, but also the highly acidic and chemically reactive environments too. Phosphine is a very simple chemical and we know that even comparatively more complex amino acids that we have detected in comets and asteroids appear to be a purely chemical byproduct without the need for life to produce them. We are far from fully understanding the very different chemical melting pot that is Venus, and the phosphine could simply be a product of that chemical stew. As to phosphorus scarcity, Venus certainly has a decent amount of phosphorus but don't take that as an indicator it represents a great stockpile. The amount of phosphine found in the atmosphere is quite small compared to what we might expect for a biosignature. The shock of the discovery was mostly just that we found any phosphine gas at all. Still, it can't be ruled out that there might be life in the clouds of Venus, and strange life at that. That is all the more reason to get ourselves out there for a closer look, and we contemplated some ways for doing just that in our episode, Colonizing Venus. We'll get to the upcoming schedule in a moment, but first, if you enjoyed this episode you can thank Jerry Gorn, one of our regular editors on the show who pitched the idea to me. He also co-wrote this episode and quite a few others. Jerry is also a sci-fi fantasy author and last year I encouraged him to start his own YouTube channel for his short stories. He now has several posted on his channel, Jerry's Stories, that I've really enjoyed. The most recent is a philosophical time travel story called Paleontology. I helped review this one while he was drafting it and I instantly loved it. If you like time travel, dry humor, and very good writing, check out Paleontology at the link in the description. That's actually a piece of advice I give a lot of authors who ask for suggestions. Narrate your own short story or some sample chapters and put it out there for folks to listen to, either on YouTube like Jerry Gunn did or even on Audible, folks are often surprised how simple it is to publish your work there. As I often say, a good narrator makes a good book even better, and some of my favorites have been audiobooks narrated by the author. Some of my favorite self-narrated audiobooks include the works of Douglas Adams, Neil Gaiman, and Roger Zelazny. Speaking of Douglas Adams, while he is best known for The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, another of my favorites by him is Dirk Gently's Holistic Detective Agency, our Audible Audiobook of the Month. The novel offers its own interesting discussion of how life arose on Earth, inspired by some of his time as a scriptwriter for Doctor Who during Tom Baker's Amazing Run, and unsurprisingly it also features time travel. It's one of my personal favorites and Adams narrates as well as he writes, though there are other versions with different narrators and even a forecast audio drama version and they are all available on Audible. You can find that audiobook along with the rest of Douglas Adams' legendary work over at Audible. They also have podcasts, guided wellness programs, theatrical performances, and exclusive Audible originals. Indeed they have over three centuries worth of audio if you just hit the play button and ran it through every title. If you want access to that massive collection of great audiobooks, like Dirk Gently's Holistic Detective Agency, you can join Audible for a 30-day free trial, and Audible members not only get discounts on any audiobooks they buy, but a free book every month. Additionally, they are now giving unlimited access to their Audible originals. You can start listening today with a 30-day Audible free trial, just visit the link in this episode's description, audible.com slash Isaac, or text Isaac to 500-500. So this wraps our episodes up for September, but we still have our monthly livestream Q&A coming up this Sunday, September 27th, at 4pm Eastern Time, and as usual we'll be taking questions from the audience in the livestream chat as we go. Then we'll start October off with the third episode of our new series, Becoming an Interplanetary Species, as we return to the moon and stay there this time. 
Then the week after that we'll be taking a look at megacities, the popular concept in science fiction, and we'll see what sort of challenges and surprises await us in the future if our cities keep growing. If you want alerts when those and other episodes come out, make sure to subscribe to the channel, and if you'd like to help support future episodes you can donate to us on Patreon or our website IsaacArthur.net, which I'll link in the episode description below, along with all of our various social media forums where you can get updates and chat with others about the concepts in the episodes and many other futuristic ideas. Until next time, thanks for watching and have a great week!